Good evening. Welcome to uh, December's Brixton Book Jam. Um, yeah, very nice to see you all here. We're having a raffle this evening in aid of Brixton Soup Kitchen, which is run by Solomon Smith. Raffle tickets can be bought over at the book shop in the corner. The prizes are an accumulation of books that have been collected over previous book jams. Uh, I think people will get about six books each. Mystery prize, basically. <laughs> anyway, to kick off tonight, we'd like to welcome back Jenny Stallard. Uh, Jenny's a writer and ed editor who worked away from cub reporter at a local newspaper to magazine features and is now commissioning editor on the features team at commuter paper Metro. It was at Metro she wrote her own column, Boyfriend by Christmas, which, while it ended with her single and happy, generated the idea for her first novel, Boyfriend by Christmas. Please welcome to the stage Jenny Stallard. Um, so you join us a little way through the book um, in December, which I thought would be appropriate, when uh, Jeannie Havisham, the heroine, is going on lots and lots of dates trying to find her boyfriend by Christmas. So this is the 12 dates of Christmas. It's the final countdown. I'm getting a bit manically overexcited as it's early December, and as you might have guessed, no boyfriend yet. But it's okay, there's still plenty to do to rectify the situation. And now it's officially December, there are a whole host of wintry-style dates going on. And for the past week, I've done them all. Two in a day, and in one day, I did three. So here they are. Rated. London Eye at Night, five out of ten. Romantic, because, well, you see Christmassy London from above the Thames. However, if you are on a first date, beware. You cannot get out of those pods until they've done the full circle. And you'll be in there with possibly A, families, and B, other couples who are finding it romantic or getting on. Possibly an expensive lose-lose situation. The Emirates cable car, 7 out of 10. See above, but it's shorter and a lot cheaper, so it gets a higher rating. Win-win if you decide you don't fancy him halfway around. Seeing an old-fashioned Christmas film, e.g. It's a Wonderful Life, 10 out of 10. Romantic, nostalgic, still boozy if you go to a cinema where you're allowed alcohol, like Screen on the Green in Islington. If you get on and you like each other, it'll ramp the romance up high. If you don't, then you just like any other cinematic experience, it gives you a good hour and a half of your evening not having to talk to him and getting to see a film still. And if it goes well, you can have a sleepover date for round two with a DVD, maybe The Muppets Christmas Carol. Sledging at the indoor snow dome, four out of 10. Romantic idea, but in the actual execution, inevitably wet and sweaty and not in a good way. The South Bank Christmas Market, one out of 10. A, children. B, their parents. C, tat you don't need to buy. D, bad mulled wine. Number six, winter wonderland in Hyde Park. Rating, three if you're sober, eight out of ten if you get tipsy on the cheap mulled wine. Why is it different to the Christmas market on the South Bank? Generally because there are far fewer children. But watch out for the cosy couples who, if you're not careful, will make you feel even more super single if you're not getting on with your date. The ice bar, three out of ten. Cosy? No. Sweaty? Yes. I know, an ice bar. Sweaty? But it's the capes. You have to wear special capes to keep warm. Capes everyone else has already worn. Do you get cosy? Only if you've got quite tipsy first. Trafalgar Square and Covent Garden. Nine out of ten. What is not to like about the giant tree, then walking through the cosy streets past St Martin's in the field, all lit up, to Covent Garden, 
where there'll be a giant reindeer covered in fake grass. Then you can go to the Punch and Judy, a pub always full of revellers. This is the date for people who want a bit of romance and then a lot of drunkenness, loudness and probably a cab home together. Go if you're at the stage where it's okay to ask your date to take a selfie with you in front of the tree in Covent Garden. Number nine, a chalet-style bar. Rating, nine out of ten. Well, yodel me a fondue and call me crazy, but I actually think these bars are the perfect place for a date. They spring up all over London as Christmas approaches, basically made to look like an alpine chalet. Ideal for dates, you get to cosy up under blankets with warm alcoholic drinks, being all touchy-feely and snoggy and half-drunk. Christmas lattes at Starbucks, seven out of 10. Coffee dates are an ideal way to date during the day. Staying sober and avoiding paying loads of money to meet someone who you might not get on with. Cocktails at the Shard, seven out of 10. Romantic, yes, Christmassy, only if the sky's clear. Go to the Shard for cocktails if A, he's paying, B, you're hoping for a proposal, or C, you want to really feel like a tourist. And number 12, the ice skating date. To round off this week's Christmassy themed dates, tonight it was ice skating at Somerset House. Top romance potential, no? The lucky man in question was someone I'd met that week on plentyoffish.com. Ice skating, what could be more romantic? Well, you may well ask. Actually, it's the least romantic thing you can do ever with someone you don't know. The only people who should go ice skating in wintry places are couples who know each other really well and friends. What you imagine is Kate Beckinsale in serendipity, floating around, dropping gloves so John Cusack can find them and they can fall in love, or men who can offer women their scarf, or stop on the ice for a cheeky kiss before you get going. What actually happens is a mixture of emotional and physical pain that leaves you wishing you'd never set eyes on the person again. Maybe you've been on a good ice skating first date, but for me, it was a bloody nightmare. Literally at one point, I fell over and cut my hand when we tried, just the once to hold hands and skate together. Tip one, ice skate date fans, wear gloves. Ice skating is clumsy, awkward, cold and repetitive. You go around in circles, hoping that the other person will help you in some way. He was quite nice when we first met on the corner and I had high hopes since he was indeed as tall as he'd said he was. But put a tall man on ice skates and suddenly he's a T-Rex on banana skins. Poor man. He must have felt so emasculated. Once we'd been to the first aid area to get my hands seen to, he asked if I wanted to go for a drink. I'd better get home with this injury, I said at the same time as he said, fancy a drink to help numb the pain. But everything was numbed already, mostly my romance gene. It was frozen and I just wanted to go home. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Um, next, we welcome to the stage Eleanor Etienne. She is working on a short story collection since completing the manuscript of her novel, The Exclusions of Love. The stories have been read at Liars League, Vanguard Readings, and Story Slam Live. She is a graduate of the Certificate in Novel Writing at City University. Please welcome to the stage Eleanor Etienne. We're back to the novel this evening. This is a short extract from somewhere near the beginning. Weren't the first murders of streetwalkers? 
those young women seen in out-of-focused images glimpsed on our forever flickering TV screens. You were the first one to point them out to me. The words already there, ready in my mind. What a shame. I wasn't thinking about their deaths. I was thinking about their lives, the choices they had made, how inevitable it all was. The first was a woman of 24, mother of one, missing for over three weeks. I didn't even hear about her. My interest was on the unrest in the Russo-Asian continent, the land grab that had started at the borders and was heading west, people's homes, property and cultures turned into prime real estate, whole nations displaced and running. It troubled me. I went to sit, crouched low by Gabriel's knee and showed him big innocent eyes to mask the words invasion and deluge. He laid his papers onto one side and ran his hands the length of his lap. I've told you, he said, those things could never happen here. His answer was security, the wall. I tried to tell him that I saw them lapping the wall, a tidal wave of bodies, no wall, no matter how high I could keep out. He squeezed my wrist a little. He had such strong hands. And he was right. Didn't we live on an island? A walled city on an island. Those things were out there, but you'd never have known it to look at us. We had dinner parties to attend, vineyards to attend, fashions to make and remake. We were up to eight before you made me understand what was happening. I was in the kitchen, confusing myself with where Dana had hidden the good glasses when you called for me to come see. I came out of the kitchen, stood in the doorway. See what? You there, with your old-fashioned sass. You were poised at the edge of the sofa, a freshly lit cigarette tipped so close to your lips and wearing your favourite silk beach pyjamas with the flaming scarlet cranes printed all over. The room still smelt of jasmine, the hair oil you used. You had your hair cropped short in finger waves, just as we were packing away our precious fabrics and making our hair looser, softer and more feminine. You carried on as before. Did you know that was your time? The only time you'd have? Her name was Paula Collette, you said. 18 years old. Remember how the news report always gave details of the dead in list form, just as they had in the days following the flood? Then the numbers had totaled hundreds of thousands. You and me, when the electricity was finally back on. How we sat together with the lights out as though the world was no longer outside the TV screen illuminating the sheen of our faces night after night. They hadn't shown photographs then. We didn't have to see them to know they were gone. I watched her face frozen on the screen. Streetwalker. You turned sharp to look at me. Why say it like that? After all these years, I still remember every word. I'd take it all back if I could. Every word. Like what? Streetwalker, like that, like that explains everything. Doesn't it? You don't think it's shocking? Shocking? What's shocking about it? I had Gabriel's word, words in my mouth. Occupational hazard. You don't mean that. Don't I? 
You stared at me in that funny way as though you couldn't remember who I was or what you were doing there. And you looked so much like our mother that I laughed from the shock of it. Until your voice went cold in the way you said, tell me you don't mean that. Okay, so I didn't mean it exactly, but weren't there more important things happening in the world? I pointed back to the TV screen, see? Hundreds dying out there. What's one woman compared to that? It's not one woman, it's eight in 10 days. Eight wasn't 80 or even 18, but Gabriel hadn't said anything about it. Eight murdered, not just murdered, brutalized. News enough for you. And then you were leaving. Not appalled by me, I hoped, but maybe needing to be away from me. I'd taken my role as little sister too seriously. Again, the little torment, the devil's advocate. You see, there wasn't space enough on the pedestal for both of us. I wanted you to be the one who knew right thinking and was brave and sure and good. And you were, right up until the end. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor. Next, we welcome to the stage Jacqueline Crooks, who is a Jamaican-born writer. She writes about Caribbean migration and subcultures in the UK, and she's been published in anthologies by People Trees Press, Granta and Virago. Please welcome to the stage Jacqueline Crooks. Hi, I'll be reading uh, a short story that's in the Vanguard anthology that's on sale um, at the table. Zucker. Zucker, huh? The town will bossy about it. Chur, she thinks. Somebody needs to warn them people. When you mess with the underground, you better be tuned. She stands on the other side of the road, hip cocked in her six inch bondage ankle strap heels. Leather skinnies, vintage gabichi. Looking fine for a 40-year-old, she thinks. She checks the queue of hipsters outside, popping style in twisted trousers and ugly shoes. Cuts her eyes on them. The metal railings on street level are covered in club night posters. Underground toilets, that's what the place used to be. Now it's called Zucker. An underground club promising rough beats, chemical cocktails, and an artsy crowd. A promise is a comfort to a fool. That's what the hologram told her one night. As a child, she dared to look at the hologram as it hovered above her bed, tuning her, red-eyed, the center of its face mashed in dark. No mouth, no nose, black vibrating lights hanging from its chin. Kill him, kill him, it ordered her. She was 12, what a rasp did she know about killing her hardback pupper? 
Was she supposed to push the weak-handled bread knife into his belly? Stir bleach in his white rum? Nah, she wasn't tuned enough. She styled it out, kept her gut clenched so tight she couldn't shit. And then one night, she was almost fully tuned. She was in bed, wearing her zipped-up tracksuit for safety. The hologram made its nightly appearance, hissing until the air vibrated, descant metallic voices. She heard the palpating floorboards, her pupa's lopsided tread. And when her pupa was outside her room, the hologram licked some kind of high pitch, so high she could only sense it. Vibrational patterns zigzagging, screeching into her badoom, badoom heartbeat. She heard her pupa go to the bathroom. She picked up the stench of his pheromes with her animal nose. She took the bread knife from under her pillow, swallowed the overproof darkness. She ran down the stairs out into the night. Space and echo, exoplex screams, rimshot thunder. She heard the bluesy snarl of rare grooves and strode to the front of the hipster queue. The doorman was a breeder she'd had a ting with a couple of years back. She'd handed him a ways. He wasn't going to acknowledge her. She popped her lips at him. What are you saying, man? He flecked his bull neck, kept his hands clasped in front of his crotch. Smooth me in, nah, she said. He looked at her, head on the side, big ears erect, kicked his teeth and stepped aside. Inside the club, she looked around. The public toilets hadn't changed that much since the time she'd arrived 30, 20, a thousand years ago. The leather-covered bar stood where the row of cream-colored porcelain sinks had once been. She sat at the bar, ordered rum and black from the top-knotted, tattooed barman. In the mirror at the back, she saw the reflection of the leather booths behind her where the cu toilet cubicles used to be. She'd run away from her house, her split-faced pupa and her medicated mama in the middle of the night. The, t the hologram's tonal instructions vibrating inside her. She hadn't been completely tuned, but tuned enough to know what she had to do. I'm going to end the story halfway through. Thank you very much. taller coming to the stage now. <laughs> As the lead writer for BBC America's Anglophenia website, Fraser McAlpine, a man assembled from almost every region of the UK, spends his life explaining Brits to foreigners, and now he lifts the lid on our Marmite pot of nations and takes you on a journey from the Isle of Wight to Inverness, Belfast to Bangor, exploring the joyful enthusiasms and pet hates of an endlessly multifarious Britain. Please welcome to the stage Fraser McAlpine.
Good evening, Wembley. <laughs> this chapter I'm about to read uh, is an attempt to explain James Bond and Sherlock Holmes to Americans. It takes a while. D uh, British fiction's two most famous solvers of cryptic mysteries share a definite link, one of attitude, morality, and temperament. That word should be temperament. Crudely put, they are both sods. Charming sods, delightful sods, but sods nonetheless. Holmes is a rotter simply as a side effect of his maniacal need to instill order upon everything. This compulsion not only to notice everything, but also to ascribe a most likely motive to it and make deductions based upon those motives drives out all possible human need for admiration, confirmation, or affection. His need to be seen as the best comes from the scientific observation that everyone else is slower and less methodical than he is. Consequently, he is brash, arrogant, quick-tempered and impulsive. If his superpower were in his muscles and not his brain, he'd just be a bully. But because he's a chippy smartass who solves murders, people adore him. <laughs> that said, he's the kind of man who can really sustain only one true friendship because groups of friends would not put up with him dominating the room in the way that he does. Holmes' one acquiescence to vanity is to befriend Dr. Watson, whose diaries tell the story of Sherlock's life and work. So he's not quite a lone wolf, but he's certainly a packless alpha male dragging a biographical bloodhound in tow. Bond is slightly different, but not by much. No less of a sociopath and with no less of a cruel streak, he expects the company of women as his reward for being the best at what he does. Actually, company's perhaps the wrong word. What Bond craves is the acquisition of women. And we don't really know whether he's the best or not, but he certainly doesn't recognize any rivals for the title. The Bond franchise may have taken great steps to give the women in the films a sense of personal autonomy regarding their utter inability to resist the charms of this known player, mainly by using innuendo-laden names like Pussy Galore, Plenty O'Toole, Xena on a Top, and Holly Goodhead. <laughs> the day the producers of the Bond movies realized that their best hope to replace Sean Connery in the lead role was an actor with the actual name Roger Moore <laughs> must have been a fine day indeed. But his cavalier treatment of his conquests before and after the credits roll merely serves to prove that they have as much individual importance to him as a single bullet in his Walter PPK or one good martini. Speaking of which, Bond goes around the world gleefully dispatching henchmen and rotters with a cold disregard for human life and applying the lech fingers to almost every woman he meets always with a one-liner ready, because a British man without a noticeable sense of humor is no kind of man at all. And yet the one thing he's guaranteed to get snippy about is if someone makes his cocktail wrong. Mr. T could not pity a fool as much as Bond does should his martini be stirred and not shaken. The Daniel Craig rebooted Bond even got to make a gag out of this by getting James to snap, do I look like I give a damn, when asked by a bartender, no less, if he preferred his drink shaken or stirred. But he still got shirty about it, like a sod. 
So what is it about these two imperious swine that, that has so captured the British fancy? Well, Sherlock Holmes represents British scientific exploration. He's a boffin, a swat, and he was created in an age when British engineering and scientific exploration were the envy of the world. Sherlock is not the toughest guy in the room, although there have been some efforts to change this, most recently in Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes films, where Robert Downey Jr. Holmes is quite the bare-knuckle boxer. But he's the smartest, and he possesses the withering scorn of the Great British Scold, too. For Great British Scold, Simon Cowell and uh, Gordon Ramsay. It's no coincidence that Holmes has been resurrected so many times recently now that we're in an era where science is under attack from people who feel that they know what they know and that this is enough knowledge to be getting on with. By contrast, Holmes is a poster boy for angry facts, an arch refuter of all codswallop, and while the Brits are as susceptible to hokum as anyone else, they often like to think of themselves as rationalists first. With Holmes, the subtext is always well, you would believe that, wouldn't you? Which is a very lofty perch from which to view the world. But then there's Bond. By no means the cleverest person in the room or the wittiest, he succeeds because he's the most confident and he has no concern about the consequences of his actions. He was invented during an era of worry for the British. The Second World War had just ended, espionage was the new front line, and the most effective weapon against global superpowers or decadent supervillains with remote island bases, was sheer nerve and a decent local phrasebook. Manners, deportment, etiquette, the ability to play a decent hand of poker and a fairly snotty attitude towards cocktails. Bond is a cad and a rogue, but he's cool and English and he won't stand for any nonsense. He drives mouth-watering cars as if he doesn't care that they're going to get smashed up and he always gets the girl. He can travel the casinos of the world in a tuxedo, being rude and beating off all comers, and I've written here in brackets, pause, eyebrow to camera. <laughs> Why wouldn't the Brits love him? <coughs> Ian Fleming knew this, because he'd been a kind of proto-Bond himself, and he poured all of that experience and concern into a character who would also never, ever admit to being rattled. Bond's appeal is that he remains unsentimental even when everything is falling apart around him. He's an inspirational figure for the ideal of the well-traveled Englishman dismayed at the collapse of empire. And the films are as much a send-up of what Bond sees as the idiocies of the rest of the world as they are super-duper action movies. Bond and Holmes are not only anti-heroes, they carry their own critics along with them, shrugging in exasperation to the audience as if to say, this guy, huh? Dr. Watson's loyalty is sorely stretched at times, and yet he remains solid and dependable, while endlessly pointing out his friend's many social flaws. Bond spends a lot more time alone in the field, but when he reports back to base, his is not a hero's welcome. No matter that he has saved the world many times, he'll still feel the sharp edge of the quartermaster's tongue if that Aston Martin got blown up. And M isn't exactly one for the high fives either. So the message from Bond and Holmes is partly that being extraordinary doesn't excuse being a sod, even when you've saved the day. But also that being a sod does look like a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you.
Okay, we're going to take a break. Thank you very much, Fraser. Yep, we've still got a raffle going on in the corner over there selling raffle tickets. There's going to be two prizes, so you know that's that narrows the odds a bit. I think at least one of you is going to win. <laughs> oh yes, and books for sale too. Books for sale over there. <laughs> okay, I'll see you in about 15 minutes. Okay, welcome back. Uh, just to remind you, we're having a raffle. Raffle tickets are available in the corner. I so, if you can uh, remember that and go and look at the bookshop. 